Aren't you grateful you aren't able to know everything everyone is saying about you? <laughs> what a blessing it is to not know how some people are talking about you. Have you considered God does not have this privilege that you and I enjoy? Just as we know that he sees everything, because scripture says the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good, so too God hears everything. Nothing escapes his notice. As we come to our text from Malachi this morning, what he's hearing from the lips of his own people is not good. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before your word this morning, humble and needy as always, grateful to you for having given it to us, thankful for your Holy Spirit that helps us to understand. May we learn and apply what it is that you have for us this day so that we can, in fact, be the people that you want us to be and the people that you deserve, reflecting your glory in this world. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our passage for today opens with uh, a most remarkable declaration. The people of Judah have managed to do something unthinkable, something hard to fathom, something many of us would have previously maybe considered impossible. They have wearied the Lord. They have wearied the Lord with their words. This is, mind you, the same Lord, our God, of whom the prophet Isaiah wrote, he does not grow tired or weary. Okay? This is the same Lord who created the world and all that it contains in six days and took the seventh day to rest. Not because he was tired, not because he needed to, but because he intended to establish for you and I a balance in life, a regular rhythm of work and rest that would keep us mindful that he sustains all of this and we do not. He is the God, the Bible says, who does not slumber nor sleep. In terms of work and ability, God is tireless. And yet as we come to the end of Malachi chapter 2, the testimony of God through his prophet is that the people have managed to wear him out. Some translations say, you have worn out the Lord with your words. You have tired the Lord out with your talk. You have tried the patience of the Lord. So friend, when the one who gives power to the faint is himself faint, something is terribly wrong. The people have wearied the Lord, and they have done this with their words, not their occasional Words. The reference here isn't to those one-off, casual, or thoughtless, or inappropriate marks, remarks that sometimes mess people up and that should just be overlooked. Okay, The scriptures teach us to overlook careless words that are aimed at us, knowing that we too are guilty of careless words toward others from time to time. But these words from God's people aren't those type. They are rather the incessant constant refrain of the people among themselves, like lyrics to the song that never ends. 
is sung over and over and over. And the Lord is tired of hearing them. The people's words are tiresome and offensive for a few reasons. First, we see they do not appear to be directed to him. So a good rule of thumb for anyone who's in a dissatisfying situation with another person in conflict with somebody is to talk to that person, not to talk about that person. And that's the opposite of our inclination, isn't it? We want to talk about the one who we believe has mistreated us. However, God's word in Matthew 18 tells us that we should talk to them. We should go to them. We should resolve the matter. And the same principle holds true for any grievances one might have against God. Scripture is filled with, I'm sure you've noticed this, the Psalms especially filled with complaints that are directed to God. Questions from positions of grief or positions of anger or positions of helplessness and perceived injustice throughout the, the Psalms. How long, O oh Lord? Or why have you forgotten me? Or why, God, do you hide your face from me? Why have you rejected me? Why have you forsaken me? Clearly, God is able and willing to handle the complaints of his people, the ones that are filed with him, but he's not pleased at all when we simply choose to complain about him. The words of the people are not directed to God. They are spoken about God. And second, the words of the people are devoid of faith. We could say that they are promoting faithlessness. Foolish words that in uh, the old King James are good for nothing but gendering stripes. The words of the people are spreading unbelief. They're not the sorts of words that God deserves to hear, not from his own. They're not words of praise, they're not words of gratitude, not words of worship or even cries for petition. They are not fulfilling God's purpose for speech in the least. God has given us speech in order that we might use it to give grace to hearers, to build other people up. That's what the Bible teaches us. But if anything, the words that are muttered here in Malachi's day are tearing down. They're tearing down morale. They're assaulting truth. You would think that in hard times, brothers and sisters would use their words to recall the attributes of God, to encourage each other to lean more into him, but the opposite is what's going on here. And thirdly, the words of the people are mischaracterizing God. Maybe this is the most egregious of all because they're making God out to be someone that he is not. They're saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. And we might wonder, where would they get such a silly idea? How did they arrive at that conclusion? Well, it didn't come from the Bible, did it? Some, some thought like that cannot come from the Bible. The Bible clearly spells out the difference between good and evil. It just as clearly tells us what God delights in. It tells us what God hates. So the people are far afield here from God's word as the interpretive lens for their worldview. And instead, they've inserted their own 
sense of what should and should not be to make sense of their circumstances. Beloved, the further we get from the Bible in interpreting our circumstances, the more tenuous our conclusions are bound to be. We need to stay tethered to that word. We need to stay in that word, knowledgeable of and reliant on that word if we're going to understand anything that's happening in this world. The people see the wicked prospering. They look out and they ask that age-old question. You've probably asked that question yourself. I have. Why do the wicked prosper? Why does vice seem to, to work and virtue seem to be oppressed? Why do the people who work hard not be rewarded? The people who don't work hard, hard have, seem to have everything. Why is this thing all messed up? That's what they're seeing. That's what they're wondering. But they come to the wrong conclusion. They see the wicked prospering. They see who they believe the righteous are to be suffering. And so they conclude that God is good with wickedness. Somehow God must have changed his side or changed his mind. God then is going to reward the evildoer. They believe this in their hearts. And they say it with their lips. And again, God hears all of it. He hears his own people speaking blatant mistruths that impugn his character over and over again. And their words weary the Lord. This is the transgression. The people are wearying the Lord with their words. So we have to ask, or at least we, we ought to ask, when we read about sin in the Bible like this, is it something that we do? Is it something that we might be capable of? Might we ever be guilty of this same thing or maybe something similar? And I think if you're honest, you have to say, well, of course, it's at least a possibility. If we weren't capable of careless speech, we might not need reminders like the one Jesus gives. It's recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. If ever there's a scripture that caused one to shiver, that would be it. If, if only life-giving words were on our lips all the time, we wouldn't need... Ephesians 4.29, it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. If we were always thoughtful in our speech, we would not need James's lengthy admonition about the power of the tongue or the need to tame it. And... If we weren't prone to grumbling and complaining, we wouldn't have to be told not to. Which is exactly what we read in Philippians 2, verses 14 to 15. It says, Do all things without grumbling or complaining, that you might be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. A Christian, 
light and salt in this world. Do everything without grumbling and complaining so that you will shine, so that people will see that difference in you. But if you grumble and if you complain, you're not giving glory to God at all. So, it is possible that we could be in the habit of wearying the Lord with our words. And in this case, and by way of application, what we have here in Malachi is a lesson in what not to do or how not to be. Rather, to please the Lord, we should give careful, careful thought to the words that we use. And in this day and age, I, I think we have to add the words that we type, the words that we text, the words that we post. Are the words that we use, the words that we choose, spreading truth? Are they spreading grace? Are they giving hope? Are they words of faith? Do they ring out with uh, gratitude for God's provision? Do they betray a deep, deep thankfulness to God? Do they testify to how great He is? Do they bear witness to God's goodness? Is the Lord delighted when He hears what's coming from our mouths? That's the question. Is the Lord delighted when he hears what's coming out of our mouths? So if the people of Judah were thinking and behaving along these lines, it would not be a problem. But they're not. They are, in fact, disappointed and dissatisfied and disillusioned with God to the point of questioning if he even exists. Where is the God of justice? They ask. And the Lord answers, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Short, short answer to the question, where is the God of justice? He's coming. That's what the prophet says. He's on his way. The first verse of chapter 3 introduces us to two messengers. One will come to prepare the way for the other. And I want you to remember that at the time of, of this writing, it hasn't happened yet. This is prophecy. But, but living in the New Testament age, we actually know that this has been fulfilled. The language is familiar to anybody who's, who's spent any time with the Bible or who's been a Christian for a while and knows the story of salvation. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare a way before me. He will prepare the way before me. In chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, this verse, its, it's counterpart from Isaiah 40, are combined and they are said to fulfill the ministry of who? John the Baptist. You know that. John the Baptist, a forerunner to Christ. He came to make straight the paths of the Lord, to prepare the region for Jesus' ministry by preaching uh, a message of repentance for sins. He's the first messenger that Malachi speaks of. And the second is Jesus, the Lord himself, the messenger of a new covenant, the Son of God, the visible image of the invisible God who came to earth to show us who God is and what God is like. Who came to save us. So still in verse 1 chapter 3. And the Lord whom you seek. Will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant. In whom you delight. Behold he is coming. Says the Lord 
of hosts. That is, that is God's answer to the people's question. The Lord whom you seek, the God of justice, is on his way. He is coming. In other words, God is saying, I have a plan. We're going to see how that plan unfolds. He is coming. So next Sunday begins a celebration of the Advent season. Advent is our English word derived from the Latin Adventus, which means, you know what it means? Coming. That's what it means. That's what Malachi is saying. He is coming. He will come to his temple. Do you know that 400 or so years after this prophecy was uttered, he did. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That's how Paul puts it in the book of Galatians. When the fullness of time had come, when the time was right, God is always on time. I know sometimes it, it doesn't feel that way. I know sometimes it doesn't seem that way. But God is always on time. And the people of Judah were complaining because of God's timing. And sometimes we can complain because of God's timing. But what this tells us is that the Lord has a plan. And he unrolls things as they ought to be unrolled in his sovereign will. When the fullness of time had come, not one second before and not one second late, God sent forth his Son. John says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Because he loved the world, God sent his son into the world to save it. And his son was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary and born as a baby in Bethlehem. In Luke's gospel, we find a story of his coming to the temple. It's an account of an old man, a godly old man, righteous and devout, named Simeon, who was instructed by the Spirit to go to the temple on the day that Joseph and Mary brought Jesus there to do for him according to the custom of the law. This was the first of many times Jesus would come to the temple. His original audience couldn't know it. Malachi's original audience couldn't know it then, but we know it now. The prophet is two for two. He's prophesying about John the Baptist, and he's prophesying about Jesus coming to the temple. The messenger of the Lord, he said in verse 2, is coming, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Who can endure it? The word implies that it's going to be a searching ordeal. And who can stand? This is a military analogy, meaning who will stand his ground? And the implied answer to both of these rhetorical questions is no one. You see, when the God of justice and judgment comes on the scene, his perfection is going to illuminate all other imperfection. And it will become evident when he comes that no one has a spotless record. As commentator John McKay puts it, before the searching scrutiny of the judge, none will be able to maintain a successful defense. Every once in a while, somebody will say something along the lines of, well, I just can't wait to get to heaven and have God explain to me. And they fill in the blank. And I say, God isn't going to be explaining anything to you when you get to heaven. For one, the Bible tells us that we will know as we are known. But for other, let's not get confused. When we see the Lord, we're going to be on our faces. He doesn't answer to us. We answer to him. Who can endure that? Who can endure that sort of a presence? This puts the question of the people 
to God, where is the God of justice, in that category squarely of be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you ask for. You see, when the people inquired of God, this was not what they had in mind when they thought, send us the God of justice. They thought that surely the God of justice would just show up and he would smite all the bad guys and he would bless them. He would knock over the bad guys and he would lift them up. What they didn't know, what they didn't believe, what they had no sense of, was that they also were in need of reform. Don't you? It's easy, don't you think, to be eager for justice and judgment to fall on those who we believe have wronged us? A little less easy to want justice and judgment in the same measure for ourselves? That's why we have to be careful how we pray. That's why we have to be careful to forgive. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We can be blind to our own misdeeds, and that's what sin does. It blinds us to the reality of our condition. All through this book, remember, God exposes the sin of his people. That's why these messages are heavy. This is why... These are not fluffy, easy-to-hear messages, but it takes mature people to be able to hear even the hard words. God is, is, is not shrinking back from exposing the brutal reality of people's hearts. But when he does that, he does that throughout the book of Malachi. He exposes the sin. He raises the charges against them. He assaults their self-esteem. And they're incredulous. And they push back. And they're constantly asking, how? How have we wronged you? How have we done anything we shouldn't have? What have we done that we should not have done? That's their mindset. We're all set. If the God of justice would just come and do the right thing, we'd be vindicated. And everybody that disagrees with us would be wiped out. Well, to long for justice is a good thing. But when the God of justice comes, it's not going to be what the people expect. Ian Dugwood and Matthew Harmon write this in their Malachi commentary, the coming day of judgment, of which the prophet speaks, not only extends to all kinds of sins, but all kinds of people. The reality is that when the judge comes, it's not simply the notoriously wicked people who face the refining process. Judgment always starts closer to home. All classes of people, religious and irreligious, are included in God's judgment on sin. All are fairly judged, and the inevitable result on that day is that all of us will be found wanting. Okay, so that's, that's the bad news for some. That's the unintended consequence of demanding justice. <laughs> I demand justice, and now I know that I'm guilty. And that is going to be hard, as the Bible says. It's going to be hard for some people to endure. But there is good news in this, too. The God of justice is going to come. It's going to be difficult to stand before him on your own record. It's going to be difficult to endure it based on who you are and what you have done. But listen, he's come to purify his people. For he is like a refiner's fire and he is like a fuller's soap. The imagery that Malachi uses here now, it turns to the imagery of purification. Taking the impurities out of metal through refining it, removing the stains from the garments by washing them. 
Verse 3 says he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and he will refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Now we have already seen how the sons of Levi, the, the priests, were complicit in the profaning of the temple and the worship of God by allowing blemished animals to be sacrificed. So they have sinned and they need to be cleansed in their hearts in order to offer right offerings to the Lord. But this refining and purifying goes further than the literal descendants of the tribe of Levi. What was foreshadowed in the Old Testament is declared in the New, the true Israel. The true Israel of God is all the community of faith, Jew and Gentile alike. Everyone who trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And as members of the true Israel, the church, we all comprise a kingdom of priests. That is, we are all priests through Christ, and we all have priestly duties. So what Malachi is describing here is the work of God through his messenger, Jesus, to make his people fit priests, cleaned up and holy. When the God of justice comes, we'll all be found wanting, but God has a plan to make his impure people acceptable. And this is where Jesus fits in. This is where it's fulfilled in the ministry of Christ. Christ the better worshiper, Christ the better priest, offers himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world once and for all. He atones for our sins through the shedding of his blood. So that anybody who calls on his name, anybody who calls on his name will be saved. And Paul wrote to the Ephesians about this. He wrote, he wrote about Jesus saying that he loved the church and he gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. And the cleansing that Paul's talking about here is spiritual and it's eternal. Sin that is common to all humans makes its mark on our souls. Sin writes guilty in permanent marker. No amount of good deeds, no amount of self-cleaning can erase our culpability before God because of our sin. Jeremiah 2.22, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. There is only one way to get out from under the guilt and penalty of sin, and that is to be washed in the soul-cleansing blood the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself. Listen, this is Jesus' work, purifying for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, who are zealous to live for him, not just for themselves. And this is how to be clean before God. This is how to be acceptable to God. This is how to be reconciled with God. And in a place where the worship that you bring is pleasing to God, the only way to do this is through Jesus Christ. He is the only way, the way, the truth, the life, the only way to the Father. In Christ, 
we offer right sacrifices, not the blood of goats and bulls and stuff that we've been reading about, but actually the right sacrifices turn out to be what, you know? Turn out to be us. That's what Romans 12 is all about. Brother, present yourselves living in holy sacrifices. The right sacrifices turn out to be us. Sacrifices of ourselves offered by hearts that are convinced and grateful, not only that, that God is a very present God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy. And he doesn't give us only what we deserve. He gives us better than what we deserve. He forgives us. And he gives us eternal life. So what Malachi is envisioning through the work of God's messenger, Jesus, is a purified people. A purified people is envisioned. A purified people is promised. And a purified people is accomplished in those who receive the atoning sacrifice of Christ. But Malachi is not finished. While everyone's going to be found wanting, not everyone will escape punishment. The wrongs that the people of Judah were grieving about are going to be addressed by God. He has, after all, seen them. He sees everything. He hears everything. It may seem like the wicked prosper, but in the end, they do not. Because God is just. And because God is holy. Verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not... And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. A plain message of that verse. I'm not going to pull every one of those sins out and diagnose them. But the plain message here is that judgment is coming for all who do not repent. That's what God is getting at by listing these sorts of things out. Judgment is coming for all who do not repent. It's unavoidable. Anyone who wants to persist in their sin is going to pay for that sin. Plain and simple. In that coming day, this verse tells us, God is going to be both witness and judge. He is going to testify against the wrongdoing that he has seen, and he's going to deliver the sentence for it. And there will be no fancy lawyering at that time. There will be no loopholes in that courtroom. The Lord is going to see that justice is fully and finally served. That day is coming, a day of judgment. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came for salvation. He was killed. He was buried. And the offering of his life was acceptable to his father. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven with the promise that he would return. And when he comes again, the time for salvation is through. He will come again. The Apostles' Creed tells us to judge the living and the dead. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And the dead. How will you fare in that judgment? That's the question you need to be able to answer today. How will you fare in that judgment? Will you be standing up by faith. Pleading the blood of Christ that covers your sins. And thereby acquitted. Innocent. Or will you stand in front of God on your own record. And make your own defense. The judgment is coming. But there is a reason, according to the Bible, why it hasn't come yet. Find it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 
It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That is our God. It looks like he's overlooking things. It looks like his timing is off. It looks like he's not doing what we think he ought to do when he ought to do it. And all along, he's being patient. All along, he's granting time. Wanting and hoping that time is access. Time is a decision. Why hasn't he just called it quits? Because he's waiting for you to repent. That's what the scripture teaches. This is our God. This is the God that the people of Judah were so disillusioned with and so disappointed with and so dissatisfied with. This is a God who's giving plenty of time for people to come to him that they might not be condemned eternally, but they might have eternal life. This is God. This is our God. He loves you. And he wants you to be saved. You see, the good news is that the messenger has come and the message right now in this era is a message of grace. Turn to Christ. Accept his sacrifice on the cross on your behalf. Be forgiven. Start life over as a new creation. Be born again. He has given his life for you that you might have eternal life. So whether you turn to Jesus in awe of the fact that he would do something like that for someone like you, or whether you turn to him in faith out of conviction for what you stand to inherit when the promised judgment descends, doesn't matter. What we need to know is this. Judgment for sin is sure, and it's coming, and God has mercifully provided you a way of escape if you will trust him to save you. Our Father, give us faith to trust. In this very room, there may be some who do not know you as Lord and Savior. Give them faith to trust, to believe, to be inspired by your sacrificial love and patience and forbearance. To be grateful for your mercy that doesn't just land judgment on us and make sure that justice is, is taken care of in the moment. Lord, you give us time. Time to come to you. Time to change. Time to repent. Time to be cleansed. Time to be forgiven. We praise you and thank you for that and pray that any who have not taken advantage of it to this day would do so in this moment, even now, Lord. Give us faith to trust you, to save us. We pray. Amen.